0: Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Today's episode is going to be quite different in style from my usual method of, you know, jotting down a few notes and then getting real close and personal with the microphone Pretend I'm talking to you and go through the whole subject today i'm and I'll explain all this as as we go along. You're going to hear a lot more noise in the background. Uh, the distance from the microphone at times is going to be more like this um, because I'm going to try to demonstrate that I can walk and chew gum at the same time multitask and I'm in a situation because. I need to get this week's podcast done, but I have not had the time to do it. Um my wife had to go in for surgery last week and you know was at the hospital for 4 days. So I was doing, you know, running back and forth. It's about a, about 80 miles from here to the hospital. It's going back and forth to the hospital making sure everything was good there and trying to get Jackson off to school, packing the lunches, doing the laundry, making breakfast, making lunch, making supper, um, pretty much doing everything. And she cannot drive. She hasn't been okay to drive it. And by the way, she is completely fine. Surgery went perfectly. Doctor said it was, you know, textbook perfect. No surprises. Everything's Uh, turning out well and she is well on her way to recovery but i've had to keep the house nice and quiet and i believe that uh today she is able to drive and she can get up and walk around and stuff and i told her that while i'm doing this she is you know feel free honey if you need to come in here and pour yourself a cup of coffee make a bagel or whatever so you may hear her come in and out here at some point so Now, why is this, um, that's just one layer of complication. The other is something that I haven't really talked about on the podcast before, um, but I'm going to talk about today. If you read my bio, if you go to BradleyLaird.com and click bio and read the little bio, which has been up there for, I don't know, eight, ten years. One of the things down at the very end, it says something like, I haven't read it in a while, it says something like, in addition to all that music stuff, um, Brad also uh, tends a flock of chickens, raises donkeys, uh, is a flint napper and a home brewer. Home brewer. And that is true. Um, it's not something I've done very much of lately. But l- let me tell you what we're going to do today. Just to, And then I'm going to get to the point of the episode. While I record this... I am also brewing a batch of beer, apricot ale in particular. And so, you know, brewing, it does relate to the bluegrass topic that I'm going to talk about today. There are analogous uh, ideas in place. So anyway, as, as I talk about the topic for today in the bluegrass realm. While I do that, I'm going to be here working working at the stove and also explaining a little bit about what I'm doing here with this batch of of apricot ale. Um the bluegrass subject, just in case you're like, well I may not stick around for this. Um here's here's the topic. I'm going to talk about how to start your own jam session because you know when you're a beginner or even you've been playing a while you're look you're always looking around for for a jam to go to and you know it's somebody else's project somebody else started this thing and you know many times you may finally find a jam session to go to and then you go to it and it's not exactly tailored exactly for you which is that's normal because you're a beginner you know they may not be and so you go to a festival and if you walk around a festival campground where there's lots of jamming going on which is not every bluegrass festival but let's say you go to a good jamming festival you're strolling around the campground with your little gig bag on your back and you got your little folded up stool and your cooler or whatever and you're you're mosing around uh, you know Slipping up on jam sessions, scoping it out, and wondering, hey, maybe this would be the one. What I'm saying is there's a lot of different kinds of jams. And some of them will suit you, and some of them will not. And one of the solutions, and it is the solution that that every jam session that exists was started by somebody. And I'm going to suggest to you that you might want to consider... Doing the same thing. Starting your own jam session. So that's going to be that. Let me talk about homebrewing for a bit. First of all, why I am brewing this batch of homebrew. When I started home brewing, it was uh, probably back about 1998. And it, it all started with, um, uh, I was working for a guy who was a contract packaging company and I was a graphic Graphic artist guy and I did estimating and stuff. It was a it was a fairly small operation of about thirty people. Had the owner and his wife up in the in the office and me basically, you know, customer service, you know, doing all kind of stuff, keeping the computers running. That was my day job. Well, um, the owner's wife, Caroline, was um, at. At a place called Big Lots one day, which is like a discount overstock, you know, like, you know, something somebody sold into Walmart or Home Depot and it didn't sell very well. And, you know, the big box store sends it all back. Well, that stuff ends up in these stores like Big Lots where they buy, you know, a couple truckloads of something at 10 cents on the dollar and, and they blow it out through their store. She was in there one day. And she saw these Mr. Beer kits, brew your own beer, you know, this little kit where it'd make like a gallon of beer or something like this. And she thought, oh, Brad would love one of these. So she buys a couple of them, gives one to Dave and gives one to me. And I'm like, well, this looks kind of interesting. You know, you can actually make your own beer. I'd never really thought of it. I knew people did it, but I didn't have any knowledge of home brewing. And anyway, so I take the Mr. Beer Kit home and I brew, follow the instructions to a T. I do, you know, I'm a total beginner. I read the little booklet and I mix the the malt and put the hops in it and put it in the little fermenter thing and put the airlock on it and follow the instructions precisely. And at the end of the time, bottled the beer, allowed it to carbonate. I finally got ready to try it, and it was awful. I mean, it was just, uh bad. It was yeasty, overcarbonated. It tasted bad. I mean, in, in terms of beer flavor, it was not that good. And I was like, surely this isn't the way. And I began to do some research. You know, and the internet was was coming around then. So I got on the internet, started reading up, ordered a few books, started reading about it, and I got into homebrewing. Well, along about batch 5. I was making beer in 5-gallon batches about every other month or every 6-8, you know, 6-8 weeks I would make a new batch. And I was really getting into this just like when I, you know, got the banjo bug or whatever. I was really seriously interested because there was so much stuff that I didn't know. And that's what I I wanted to know. How how do you do this? How do you do that? What's the difference between a lager and an ale and a barley wine? And what about all these hundred different kinds of yeast and hops? And it, it was just fascinating. And it drew me in, not to mention at the end of it, I would have these little six packs of, you know, cases of bottled homebrew that when the guys would come over for a rehearsal or something, I'd say, hey, check this out. You know, I made this IPA and all the guys would be trying it and going, man, this is great, you know. So it was a perfect complement to the, you know, bluegrass rehearsals and stuff. Well, I made this batch that was an apricot flavored ale. And that's what I'm making today and our guitar player buddy ashmore when he tried that one he said brad this is the best one you've made so far you need to you you need to make oh gosh if you need you need to make me some more of that well i never did i never did and i got to thinking here that has been oh gosh 18 years ago i never did i never i never like brought him a case of this stuff And I thought, you know what, it's about time I fulfilled my obligation to Buddy Ashmore. So I decided to pitch in, that's a pun for you homebrewers, and um, make another batch of apricot ale. So here we go. Right now, and and there's going to be breaks and pauses in this because, you know, some of this stuff is not going to be of interest to you. I, I have started the process three days ago by starting the yeast it takes about three days to populate enough yeast. Let me grab this yeast container. Just for you. In case you happen to be a home brewer, I'll, I'll give you the blow-by-blow blow so you'll know what I'm doing. This is Y-yeast. Liquid yeast. It is um, number 1272, American Ale. And it, I, I I got tickled. I showed this to Jackson, this little it's a little foil pouch or poly you know polyfoil pouch a little um just a little heat sealed bag you might say and it's labeled 100 billion yeast cells i got 100 billion of something i don't have 100 billion dollars i probably don't have 100 billion brain cells but this package contains 100 billion yeast cells and the package inside has those yeast just in a in a little slurry and this is a you know laboratory isolated strain a pure strain and in it is a little nutrient pack basically sugar so to start the process you hit this thing with your the palm of your hand and break that in, inner inner packet and that releases the sugar and the yeast come to life and begin to do their thing and the over the course of a day or two or three the the package will begin to swell and swell you know i'm holding in my hand a little mini brewery you know it's yeast eating malt maltose and producing co2 so the bag is swelling so now going back to the whole deal with surgery and you know all the home chores and you know helping my wife and get my son back and forth to school and play practice and piano lessons and 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 I punched this bag and started the yeast well now it is last night I'm sitting there looking at it and it's it's swollen up and I've got to do this boil today and uh, as we go along I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about the brewing process but I'm going to take a short break here I started the yeast a couple days ago and started gathering all my, you know, supplies, pots, and spoons, and the fermenting vessel, and, you know, the hydrometer, and thermometer, and all these things that I'm going to need, but beer starts with water, and so I have to get five gallons of good clean water before I can start the batch, so we live on a well here, so All day yesterday, I filtered water through my Berkey countertop water filter. I was just constantly filling it and draining it, filling, drain, fill, drain, fill. And it's very slow. But over the course of the last 12 hours, I collected five gallons of filtered well water. And that's what I'm now going to bring to a boil. And I've got a big giant pot here on the gas stove. I'm going to bring that to a boil. Well, about two hours ago i actually started boiling in a series of smaller pots so that i could use multiple stove eyes so i've already got two gallons in the pot that is already at high temperature and i've got another one going over there i need to fill a few more i'm trying to bring all this water up so that it'll it'll come to a boil rather quickly so let me pause here just a moment i gotta fill some pots and i'll be right back Okay, I'm back. Now, put the lid on that and light the stove. Okay, so I now have two gallons that has already been boiled sitting in the big pot. I got a gallon over here on the stove that's just starting, and I got another gallon over here on the next stove eye that is coming up. So... Here's the basic gist of this, and it's going to take a few minutes for that to uh, to accomplish this. I'm just going to stand here and monitor. I got to get. Yeah, if you've ever tried to boil five gallons of water, you will know that it takes a long time. A lot of heat energy has to go into that pot, and you lose a lot of heat. You know, a lot of heat is being radiated off the sides of the pot and off the top. So a lid helps. All these have lids on it. So, anyway, got to bring five gallons of water to a boil, and then we're going to add the malt. So, I'll talk about that when I actually do it. Let's talk bluegrass. So, I already talked a little bit about jam sessions, and first of all, jam sessions and jamming. Picking with your friends, you could, you know, that could be a jam at a festival. Look, jams are the lifeblood of bluegrass music. Yes, there are professionals. Yes, there are semi-pros. You know, there is a commercial side to it. But the jam session and its health, the health of the state of jamming in the world, affects the size of the population of the bluegrass community, shall we say and i i you know I have witnessed this even personally that when I started, I didn't have anybody to pick with you know, I tried to manufacture my own pickers you know take you know like try to take a friend and turn them into a bluegrass nut it didn't It didn't hardly ever work, and then it was you know the seeking, looking, going to festivals try- you know and you gradually it's a very slow process but eventually you do find some people to pick with and then you you begin to find the people that you really enjoy picking with and then sometimes those those people of like mind and talent and uh, maybe ability also separates you know and there's a clumping a flocculation and, and in terms of this brewing, uh, that's what happens to the yeast. Toward the end of the fermenting stage, the yeast cells begin to flocculate, which is grouped together, clumped together, and stick together in little little clusters, and they become heavy, and they drop to the bottom. Uh, same thing happens in wastewater treatment plants, by the way. So there's a, a clumping together of people. Well, that little clump you and the three people that you have found that just really have a good time playing whatever, you, whatever you're doing, that's, that's the heartbeat of bluegrass right there, the jam. It could be two people. I will tell you this. You can, you can sit around and pick all you want to by yourself, and it is, the experience is multiplied by ten when you add another person who is also having a good time. So it's, you know, it's greater than the sum of its parts, you might say. And this, there's an exponential growth rate in the, in terms of enjoyment and satisfaction. If you have people of like mind picking together, you got three people, four people, five people. And you, if they're the right people and and you're doing the right stuff and everybody's having a good time, your orders of magnitude greater in terms of enjoyment and in terms of the the sort of music the quality of the music that you make which is probably why you're enjoying it so much i don't play a fiddle worth a hoot but i love to hear a good fiddle player with playing with me and if you're brand new to this you may not have experienced this and if you go to a slow jam and it's you're just sitting in a circle with a room full of beginners you're not going to experience the kind of stuff that raises the hair on the back of your neck you know you're not you have yet to experience that now it may be exciting to you you know but it's it's on a different plane and as you progress your and you're playing your the plane of existence is going to rise you're going to go up and up and up and then sometimes you're going to be that person who is at a slightly elevated plane who is playing with someone at a lower plane and you sometimes get those same feelings when you see them being brought up, brought forward and lifted up. And when you see a beginner begin to feel it and you, you recognize that in them, you'll get cold chills running up and down your spine. Like a rabbit jumped over your, your grave. Okay. I'm need, hang on. Got to look in this pot over here. Okay. That pot looks good. Everything is heating up fine over here. Got to get all this water near boiling. Okay, so why do you, why would you want to start your own jam session? And you might immediately go, I can't even play a chord. Why? <laughs> I'm not the guy to start a jam session. Well, let me tell you something. Um, a lot of jams have been started by people who aren't that good at players. Now, maybe they become good players, or maybe they never do. Or maybe they barely play, or maybe they don't even play. That is not a qualification as to whether or not you start a jam. But why why would you want to start a jam? Well, you would want to start a jam so that you can have a better bluegrass jamming experience. Better than what you have experienced. And if you haven't experienced any anything is better than nothing you know the worst jam is better than no jam is what i'm saying now once you have experienced the worst possible jam then that might be a reason well maybe i'll start my own jam here's another common so improving the quality of your jamming experience that's one and that's easier to do when you have a larger population of potential pickers in your area let's say You know, when I lived in Atlanta, it would have been a lot easier to do that than living down here in America with a much smaller population. Um, Second reason to start a jam is that you're also providing that for other people. It's not just for you. You're also helping them. You know, when I had 15 students a week coming in, and every one of them needed to get into jamming, So I just started, you know, having my own jams and like, come, come, you know, we'll do the stuff you're, you're practicing, you know, so you can help other people by providing them a place to pick. It's also, it is the way to network, which lead to future connections, future possible, you know, band formations and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure you can imagine the many reasons, but you might immediately and incorrectly say oh well yeah but i'm not the one to do that i'm saying yes you might be the one to do it and you're not going to know until you try okay let me tell you about some of the jams i've started and i'm not talking about you know i'm at a festival and i'm walking around and can't find a jam so i just sit down in front of my camper and start picking and therefore i you know i've put up an invisible sign that says hey come pick with me you know and somebody drifts by and you know it's just a little organic jam eventually might form that's not what i'm talking about here i'm talking about you're going to start you a a monthly jam session or a weekly jam session you're going to try to do something regular in a in a location you're going to promote it you're going to you know try to get people to come and You're going to manage this jam and see how it goes. Well, I've done that on a number of occasions. Many times for, I just, I just wanted to do some more picking. That was for me. And I also had these students that I was trying to like provide an opportunity for them to do some things. The first one that I really started was at a place called the County Line Tavern in Sonoya, Georgia. And the, the reason I picked that spot out is because it was halfway from where I lived to where I worked. I worked in Fayetteville, Georgia, and I lived in Griffin, Georgia. And if I was cruising home on Highway 92, I would pass by the County Line Tavern. Gravel parking lot, just a little beer joint, hole in the wall, one pool table in the back, couple of pinball machines, a bar, darts. You know, very small little place just off the side of the road and just over the county line. My kind of place. Well, the lady that ran it, her husband worked with me. At the, He was like a maintenance guy back in the plant. He worked there. I'm like, hey, ask a, I forget her name. I forget her name. <laughs> anyway. And I told him the idea. What if I start a, a a bluegrass jam session there? And I was like, Yeah, yeah, come on. So I went down there and talked to him. I said, What's your slowest night? I wanna do it on a weeknight because I want to do this back going back and forth to work. And we'll you know, we'll start at about six o'clock, go six to nine, something like that. And then if people want to stay later, but, you know, basically, officially, it'll be over at nine because I got to get home, get to bed and go back to work the next morning, be there at 730 or whatever it was. So it turns out Tuesday night, you know, uh, like Wednesdays, they had a pool tournament and Thursday they had this. And sometimes on the weekends, they'd have a band come in and stuff. So we settled on Tuesday. So, I, you know, great. Next Tuesday, six o'clock, six to nine. You know, we're going to have a bluegrass jam session. So I had Pony Express. Well, no, actually, Pony Express had not reformed then. I was playing in Cedar Hill. So I told all the the pickers that I knew that, hey, I'm going to start up a jam session. It's down here on the south side. Um, Come. And I made some flyers, and I gave it to the guys. And, you know, I didn't just give them a flyer. I gave them each ten flyers. And we didn't have websites and Facebook and internet and all that kind of stuff at that time. This is probably back about 1995. Anyway, so come the next Tuesday, I got a, I had a commitment from a couple of, couple of the guys I knew that said, yeah, I'll, I'll come because everybody wants to check it out the first time. A lot of times you'll get people that'll come once. And if they like it, then they'll come back. But... You're not gonna get somebody to say, Yeah, I'll come for the next six months. So anyway, started this jam up. I was shocked. There were ten people there, ten pickers. Even a harmonica player, who I don't know how he found out about it. There's a guy I knew, a fellow ham radio operator, WI4R. He was there. Lee Weaver. And a couple of banjos, a couple of guitar players. And So every Tuesday night we had this jam session. We just stood around if somebody wanted to get a beer or a hot dog, that was up to them. But we had a place and then about nine o'clock, you know, we'd wind down. A few of them might stick around a little longer and pick. didn't matter. Didn't have a whole lot of rules there. And this thing went on for a year or more. And even sometimes I couldn't if I couldn't go for any reason, maybe I had a gig or some other commitment or something you know, it would just go on without me. So that was the County Line Tavern Jam. I started two other jams very similar to that. Uh, One was at a place called Especially for You in College Park, Georgia. Did the one there for a year or two. And I did one at at a bar called the Five Spot, which is in Little Five Points. And that was a little bit different of a situation um there was a beginning to these jams and there was ultimately an end and i'm going to talk at toward the end of this episode about you know why they fail and i'll tell you real quickly about county line tavern why it failed it failed because i moved i moved and sonoya georgia was all of a sudden 50 miles out of my way And so I was like, I can't keep doing this. And, you know, some of the other guys just weren't willing to pick up the, take up the reins and take over. And, you know, it sort of just faded away. And you know what? I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes if you push and push and push and try to prolong the life of something beyond its normal lifespan, you know, you just may cause yourself frustration. You know, other people change jobs and move and, have health problems and you know there's just don't expect your jam to last forever and don't make that your goal try to make your goal to start a jam on a regular basis and see what happens and see if you can make it as good as you can and if you fail try to learn from it okay i'm gonna take a short break here now i see that my pots of water are pretty close to boiling So I'm going to combine all this water into the big pot, and I'll be right back. Okay, so what I'm doing here, I decided before I combined all the water... Uh, the second constituent ingredient in beer is malt, barley malt. And what I'm using is an extract, which means that the grain basically, what happens is you take barley, living barley seeds, grain, harvested grain, and then you sprout it. And at the instant it sprouts, or very closely, there thereafter the process of seed germination releases some enzymes that begin to convert the starch that's in the seed into sugars and in this case it's primarily maltose malt sugar you've eaten malted milk balls or had a chocolate malt malt sugar so that builds up in the starch is converted into malt malt sugars then, through a process of, of well, there are, there are a couple of different processes to potentially uh, extract the sugars from the grain. Basically, the grain is dried. That stops any future growth. It's crushed. Hot water. It's steeped in hot water. And through the decoction method and immersion. You know, I'm not going to talk about... How you malt and extract the sugars from the grain. But, you know, advanced level homebrewers and all commercial brewer, brewers, or I shouldn't say all, but produce their malt sugars from these grains. I'm skipping that step. And what I have here is a six, I think it's like six pounds here of... Barley malt syrup. It is the concentrated sugars taken from a quantity of malted barley. So this is in a like a vacuum pack. And it looks like a bag of honey, although it's darker than that. And in order to get this to where I can pour it, I'm going to put this giant bag into one of these pots that's warming up and just let it warm up in there. So... If I get a little bit warm, it'll it'll pour out of the bag a whole lot easier. So just kind of softening the malt extract. All right, give that a minute or two. It's getting real floppy. Okay, so back to bluegrass. Here's what you need if you're going to attempt to start a jam. Number one, you need to be committed to the idea. Don't start it half-heartedly, you know, go all in, you know, you gotta, because if you're not committed, how do you expect other people to? Don't rely on other people's, you know, excitement and sense of commitment to carry it. You want to generate that, but if you're going to start it, it's up to you. So what do you need? I think very, at the first, you need a core of interested players. It could be one other person. It could be two other people one is enough if you got one other person you can talk to and say hey i'm thinking about starting a jam session a weekly jam or a monthly jam would you you know get get a gauge of their interest level would you help me do this would you would you come because we like to pick together and because you need that core because what if nobody else shows up well the two of you can pick And people may walk in and out of the place and say, hey, what's going on? Say, hey, we have a weekly jam session and you're invited. Here's a flyer, you know. So you kind of have a minimum. You can't sit around playing bluegrass just by yourself. I mean, I suppose you could, but find somebody. Find two or three, preferably pretty good players, or at least they don't have to be great, but they need to know a little something. Because if if you got two people that can't play sitting around, you're not going to attract players. You, you may drive away some of the very people you need. So try to find a couple of ringers. Try to find a couple of people. Maybe people who have been playing a long time, like me, who are, you know, not in a band presently and, you know, kind of they, they're wishing they could get some picking going again, that kind of thing. People in between bands, people, you know, you need a core. Try to find a core. People who love to pick. It's helpful to have some people who know a bunch of songs. It's helpful to have people who have the right attitude about beginners. People that are just generally nice people. um, That will be welcoming to other people. You know, don't pick the grouchiest old fart, you know. Because he's just going to drive people away from your jam. Now, that doesn't mean that that type of person can't come to the jam. But your core needs to be these, you know, idealized... Wonderful people who really want to make this happen. Okay. Try to locate that. Once you've got at least one other person, you need a location. Now, I told you about the bar, the, you know, the county line tavern. Here's some possibilities a bar, restaurant. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a beer joint on the county line. It could be, we played many years at a Mexican restaurant. Now, we had a gig. I mean, we were, it was a paid. Gig and we perform there, but a Mexican restaurant is a perfectly good possibility. You could do it in a park somewhere, you know, at a picnic shelter or or a rec room or a you know community center. You know, there might be a room at the library. Um, you could do it at someone's home, which I'll, there is some risk in that, but a lot of it goes on. Uh, you could do it at church, possibly. You could do it at a music store. You know, there's a lot of possibilities here. And each one of those types of locations offers up a different set of pros and cons. For example, a bar. You don't have liability issues. You know, if, if somebody is in that facility and trips and falls, you know, the bar's got insurance. You know, and you've been invited to do this thing. It's not really your responsibility to worry about things like that. You have the advantage that if people want to eat and drink, they can do so, and you don't have to worry about that. It takes that off of you. And some people are would enjoy the jamming a lot better if they can go up there and order themselves a beer. And some people want no part of that. So, like, if you set it up at a beer joint, you're going to attract a certain type of person and if you set it up in a church fellowship hall you're going to attract a different set of people just i'm not saying what's good or bad i'm saying just know that either one of those limits the the population possibly because some people aren't going to want to go to the county Line tavern some people aren't going to want to sit around and, you know inside a church i can't even drink a beer i like to drink a beer when i pick and stuff like that um same goes with a park. A park might have certain rules that you have to follow. Now, I'm sure they do. Um, in a home, you set the rules, but you take on the liability risk. So, you know, there are plenty of people that have started picking barns and, you know, jams at their home and that kind of stuff. I'm not saying you can't do it, but just be aware that you really need to be a little, little bit more careful there. Because when you have the jam going and you're, you know, you're in the middle of the hot jam and and somebody you don't know shows up, if it's at your home or on your property, that person is now your responsibility. Where if you're doing this thing at a Mexican restaurant or a coffee shop or something like that, that person is not your responsibility. It's the owners of the facility's responsibility. So just take that into consideration. So, you got to find your location. So, how do you find a location? I think, you know, um, just use your head, scope out the local area. Go around and start just when you're in there, imagine, huh, this might be a good place. This coffee shop over here might be an excellent place, you know. Picture yourself like in that corner jamming and start talking to these places. Go in there and talk to them. Tell them, you know, you're thinking about doing this, and would they be interested? uh one of the one of the ways that you can make that happen is a music store often if they've got the space they've gotta have the space where you won't you you're imposing upon the music store if you're jamming inside their store. You can't have thirty people blocking up the aisles and just taking over their store they're not going to want that now, I have seen some jams or generally little small jams and sometimes they have a jam on the sidewalk and then sometimes inside but you got to think about space, but many times a music store who sells bluegrass instruments and strings and picks and capos and all that, they are cool with that. I know of several music stores that I used to go to jams at. Jackson's Music, which was in College Park, used to have a little Saturday morning jam session, the House of Music in Stockbridge, Saturday morning jam session, Terror Music in Jonesboro, Saturday morning jam session. This is very common. Cause it draws people to the store and they need the business. So talk to music store owners, see if you can get a little something going. Okay. So that's possibility music stores. Um, once you find a location, you have to come up with a schedule. Like how often are you going to do this? My suggestion is, uh, you know, do a once a month thing. Oh, and talk to the, Talk to the owners. Try to pick a night that is not super busy for other things. Forget Friday and Saturday. I mean, you might do Saturday mornings, but don't do Friday night and Saturday night because the better musicians, many times, if they get a gig, they're gonna it's gonna be on Friday and Saturday evenings. And you don't want to you want to make it easy for the good players to come. Tuesdays are wonderful. Mondays sometimes are a little hectic because everybody's getting back to work. Wednesdays. At least in the South, a lot of times there's conflicts with church activities, because a lot of churches will also have services on Wednesdays. So you're getting down to Tuesday and Thursday, possibly Sunday afternoons is a good time. You don't want to go late on a Sunday. So think think about when you're going to have it and how often. Once a month is a good way to start. It gives you more time to learn from one and correct it before the next one. And try to pick a thing like you wouldn't want to do well we we do it on the fourth uh the fourth thursday night of the month when it's a full moon on high tide or something don't make this complicated you got to make it easy for people to remember you know like first saturday of the month i recommend actually the second because a lot of times the first thing of the month sneaks up on you and you're like, Dadgummit! That was last week, you know. Let let people start getting into the month of March, and then they're going like, Oh yeah, hey, the first Saturday, oh, first Saturday's coming up. That's this weekend, you know. That kind of thing. Another thing is put that prominently on your flyer. Make these little mini flyers and tell people, go ahead and write out the dates for like three or four months in advance, and say it'll be on May the first, June the fourth, da da da. You know. This is the dates and print it right on there. But of course, you've got to have a firm commitment that you can get the location. But pick a time that people can remember in their head too. you know, second Tuesday, second Tuesday, second Tuesday, and say it a lot. Then you got to get the word out. You make flyers, you make posters, you make a web page. You could put, there are a lot of um, bluegrass and folk music and Celtic music organizations, that have their little newsletter like down here in the southeast you got the southeastern bluegrass association i think you got the blue oregon uh i I know there's oregon there's california there's these little organizations and some of them aren't so little and they have newsletters and generally they'll they'll put your information in there if they find out you're going to do a bluegrass jam hey that's right up their alley they will publicize it for you put it on their calendar put it in the classifieds seek out the newsletters and make sure it goes in there print a flyer yeah you can have to spend a little bit of money on that but it ain't that much 500 flyers shouldn't cost you that much and you can always do those four on a sheet quarter size flyers and have the printer cut them for you so you don't have to sit there with scissors spend the five bucks to have the printer cut them put them around take them to music stores you know, definitely put them out at the place where you're doing it. Post it, post it, post it. You could even, if you have the money, uh, you know, put your little classified ad in the proper locations. Perhaps like in Atlanta, you might do it in creative loafing. Um, social media, Facebook, da, 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 da start all that stuff up. You got to tell people about this thing. Now, as it grows the people coming will do the advertising for you. So this is primarily to get it started. Once it's started, it becomes a little more organic and you don't have to do as much of that. I think a flyer is probably the number one thing. And put a little information on there so people know what to expect. If it's at a bar and they serve alcohol, say that. Just go and say. This is, you know, held at the County Line Tavern. You know, everybody, you know, please, uh, you know, whatever little mini rules you might have, you know, or this is at a church, no alcohol, you know, just put it on there. And that because you don't want some somebody that's just had four beers walking across the street and walking into the church and, you know, making a fool of himself in front of and, you know, all these little kids in their Sunday school outfits picking bluegrass or something you figure that part out. Then you got to run the jam. How do you run the jam? Hang on one second. I got to reach over here. Running the jam. Well, think about this. There will be a set of rules for how the jam functions. And guess what? You you get to make them up. You get to be the dictator of this thing. It's your jam. However, rules are better if you're not too in your face with him, you don't want to hand some newcomer a list of 12 things he must do, do and do not do and do not. He was like, Dang, I'm the, I got the bluegrass Nazis here. You know, we will play all our songs in G before we move to the key of A. You know, don't don't do stuff like that. You know, d- don't overthink it. You know, but do think about it. Think about okay, what would I totally not allow, like you might say no drums, no electric instruments, no amplifiers that's a good rule it's bluegrass. You might say, with the exception of electric bass, if the volume is kept to a reasonable level, you know because there are electric bass players, and sometimes they carry around a little dinky amp so they can hear what they're doing, that's cool. So you figure that out, you know, like what's okay and what isn't okay. Um, You might describe, you know, what you're generally doing. We're going to play, you know, primarily bluegrass tunes, a little bit of gospel, a little bit of country, but mostly bluegrass and, you know. Okay, if you've uh, tried to just start, I would think, make the rules as you go. Because if you don't need a rule, don't make it. But if, if you encounter something, whoa, man, what do I do? This guy keeps coming in here with his electric guitar and dragging his amp. Oh Well, we need a rule. Well, you're the rule maker. You just make the rule. You go up and say, oh, man, we just, this is, you know, that's not our thing here. We, we love electric guitars, but we, we can't have it. This is a bluegrass jam. So, you know, you got to be the diplomatic um, type to handle this. Okay. Are you going to have a slow jam? Think about that. I always like to let it organically happen. If it turns out everybody wants to jam slow, well then you slow jam. But if the jam turns hot, so be it. That's the way I I like it. I like a location too, by the way, back on location. I like a location where there are multiple picking spots within the same location. I used to go to this jam, it was hosted by the Southeastern Bluegrass Association Fayetteville chapter. And it was held in an old train depot. Just a little building, you know, that you would see alongside of a railroad track. And, you know, it had in it about four rooms. And it also had a huge porch running all the way around the outside. And in that place, the jam might start out as, you know, eight people in the main room. And then it might grow to ten, twelve. Then little splinter groups would go outside and sit on the porch or go into a different room. Uh, I used to go to a jam at, at Everett's Picking Barn, which was, you know, the jamming was actually in the house. And, of course, it's like, you know, there's four or five rooms in this house, and every room had a different jam going on simultaneously. It was great. You know, you might be in a bedroom, and, you know, people are standing on both sides of the bed and at the foot of the bed and pick it, you know, and the case is laying on the quilt there if you provide the ability for the for splinter groups to form i think that'll help you jam because it allows people to pair off and peel off and do their slow jamming over here and do their hot jamming over here if you get a large enough turnout what you don't want to do is have everybody forced to all do the same thing because everybody has different ideas of what they want to do i went to this one jam session one time only and i think it was called cedar grove it was at a community center, kind of down there in south, south, way southwest of Atlanta. Might have even been into Douglas County. I think it was Cedar Grove. Anyway, I went there one time, and it was just a building about I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. This thing was probably thirty by fifty, and you went in the door. It was just a big room. And it seemed like they had church pews or chairs or something all the way around the perimeter of the inside of that room facing inwards. And it was full of people. I mean, there were pickers sitting all the way around this room. There must have been 60 of them. <laughs> it might not have been that many. It might have been 45 pickers. I mean, like 15 guitar players, mandolin players, banjo players, and a couple of bass players standing around. So It was just a good lord and they were all trying to play together it was like the uh, cedar grove bluegrass orchestra you know and there was no other option that you either sat down and did what they were doing or you you could go outside and stand alone all by yourself and i'm sure occasionally there were little splinters that when weather was nice might have been picking outside but that's not the way You don't, don't try to make a giant bluegrass orchestra because that ain't where it's at. You know, if they go around the room, let everybody take a break. It might take an hour to play that one song. And maybe you don't even like that song, (laughs) you know? So if they get, if they get very big, if a jam, if a jam session grows beyond about 10 people, you need a place that will allow splintering off and spawning of New sessions, much like my yeast is going to do here shortly. And by the way, the whole time I've been talking here, I'm bringing this water up to a boil, and so I'm going to hit pause again. I'm going to combine all the water into the one pot and turn that fire up. Be right back. Okay, I'm back. I've now combined. Three gallons of water together in the same pot. And I'm about to add the malt. So, this is really, it's a, it's a lot more fluid now. This bag is actually too hot to hold. I'm going to cut the corner off with a pair of scissors. And then begin to squeeze it into the pot. So, here we are. Ooh, that stuff's flowing like water. That's good. Pouring it in squeezing the bag out all right just squeezing that bag and getting every last drop of this beautiful malt extract into the pot all right now i got to grab my spoon and give that a stir because i don't want to scorch it because at the beginning it'll all just go to the bottom and the bottom of the pot is super hot so give it a little stir here. Alright. Now at this point I only have three gallons of, of near-boiling water going. Now I gotta reach over here and get a get a measuring cup. And what I'm gonna do, on, I'm gonna cut this bag open a little bit more with the scissors. Very messy, very sticky stuff. And what I'm going to do is just pour a little hot water into the bag. So I want to get every drop of this. So give me a little boiling or near boiling water and pour it into the bag. Ooh, it's such a mess, but I'm holding it over the pot so all the drips just go there. And now I can swish that around a little bit. Let that hot water collect more of that good stuff. This is the food for the yeast, and there it goes into the pot. And we now have our malt in the pot. Uh, I need to rinse my hands. Hold on a second. Feels like I got syrup all over my hands. It's exactly the consistency of maple syrup. It's just barley syrup. Okay. So i got that going and the flame on high next thing is to get it to boil so i'm gonna add another gallon of water okay so now i'm up to four gallons in the pot which is all my pot will hold i'm going to give it a stir Just kind of keep it, stir it for a few minutes. And while I stir, let me tell you a few other things about this. Back on bluegrass. Um, You need to think about also, I talked about, you know, space, location. Think about financing it too. How are you going to run this thing? Are you going to charge people to jam? I've done that. I had uh, the jam at the five spot was a suggested five dollar cover charge and it was um, it's pretty well received. basically we passed the hat and it just said suggested five bucks. and the reason we did that is because we had a host band and this is an idea you might want to contemplate. You can have a a jam session is just a totally open jam session, but you can add on the feature that this jam is hosted by, and in that case, it was the Incorrigible String Band, which was a band, a little sideline band. I was playing upright bass in that group. The Incorrigible String Band, a little four-piece string band. We were bluegrass band. Well, we weren't really bluegrass. We had a harmonica, a mandolin, a guitar, and a bass little side project with me and a couple of students of mine and a neighbor of mine anyway by guaranteeing those guys a hundred bucks if they'd show up i knew i would at least have a core there because they would treat it like a gig it's a hundred dollar gig get 25 bucks a piece and we're gonna hope we you know we make that back with the five dollar cover charge and we did just barely or pretty close each time and that helped maintain a little course so you can think about that and the way the show went down was the uh the jam the the band would be there for the jam and then later they moved on to the stage and actually performed and the way we liked to run that thing was we would jam two hours then the jam would continue, but the band would go set up on stage. And then I would, during the jam, select a couple of people from the jam and ask them, hey, when we get up there, we're going to play uh, two sets. Would you like to get up there and play you know, play a few with us? And so if there was a really good fiddle player there or banjo player or something, a lot of times they'd say, sure. So this sort of turned into an on-stage sort of controlled... Uh, jam session you might say where you were controlling who got to play so if if a good banjo player showed up and he'd been jamming for two hours and i leaned over and said hey we're going to get up there you want to get up there and play the play the first set with us you know so did that that was sort of how that ran and that's what they got you know they were paid you know 25 bucks a pop um the guests were pl- paid nothing and we sweeten that deal. I th- a lot of times if you're at a bar or restaurant, you can convince the owners or the management to give a some sort of cut rate on, you know, like a like half-price draft beer or something. You know, if you can convince them, throw these pickers a bone, because if you don't have the pickers, you don't have a jam. Because the, the restaurant or bar owner... They're not looking to just serve you and your little bluegrass interests. If you want to do that, just go off to your own home or go to a park or something. The idea for the owner of the place is he might sell you a little something, but he's hoping that other patrons, you know, customers will come in and think this is really cool and hang around for a couple of hours watching and listening and spending money. So do consider the interest Always consider the interests of the owner if it's a commercial establishment, a bar, or a restaurant, or a music store. Think like they would think. Don't take over their place and try to help them make a little money. Okay. So why do jams fail? I already talked about, well, sometimes, you know, people's individual situations change, conditions change, you know. But a lot of times... I think they fail, turnout falls off and falls off and falls off because the people that are coming are not getting out of it what they want. You know, if a really hot mandolin player shows up at a jam session and he's picking with 12 people that don't even know the chords to Sally Gooden, he's probably going to move on. You follow my, get my drift there. So if you don't find what you want, you move on. Well, if too many people don't find what they're after, the thing will dwindle. So, you know, be prepared that that may happen and always be looking for new blood and try to make the features of the jam somehow try to mold and manipulate this thing to serve the needs of as many people as you can. Like having splinter jams, like, oh, we got a slow jam in this room, and we got the hot jam over there, and sometimes we all play together. You know, the more that you can provide for somebody, and, you know, the more likely they are to keep keep coming. But don't be the jam Nazi. Don't be like, you ain't allowed to do that, blah, blah, blah. If you don't have some, some ability to, uh, you know, manage people in a friendly and direct way a lot of it is just flat out communication if you just tell people you know say you know hey you could do this you could do that but hey don't do that you know the the, most people will comply you know but don't cop an attitude and start bossing a bunch of people around that will drive people away i went to this one jam session and i thought it's pretty good jam you know i like these people we're having a good time i'll come back next time go back next time i decided to bring my son he was about seven at the time Uh, he's running around playing and stuff and uh, there were some other kids Uh, the time before i'd seen one or two kids are outside running around just having a good old time i never thought a thing a thing about it well jackson came inside the room and just walked through the room knocked over somebody's drink it's an accident. He's a kid, you know. I jump up to help him kind of clean it up. Well, man, that guy, the guy that ran that jam, he sort of, he revealed to me, he didn't really say much of anything, but the look he gave me was the look of who in their right mind would bring a kid to a jam session. That, that was the, that was the uh, psychological, uh, psychic feeling I was getting from him. <laughs> you know just the look the look the look and so i thought well this dude don't really like kids <laughs> you know maybe he does like kids but he don't like them during his little jam session okay that's cool so anyway we didn't go back to that one i went back a few times but i didn't bring jackson and in other words um sometimes i'm like that with kids so i'm like i love kids as long as they're out in the yard <laughs> you know you know so it, you know, I was into picking at the time and I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. He, he wasn't coming in there, you know, disturbing the jam. He just passed through the room and accidentally kicked over somebody's drink. And anyway, stuff like that happens. But if you're the type who reacts to that with a freak out or start barking orders, you're going to drive people away. You're going to drive that person away. And you're going to drive away the people that sympathize with that person, you know? So, so, Try to control yourself, and, you know, if you got a situation with kids and stuff, well, you figure it out. Anyways, think about that. Too many rules could wreck a jam. No rules could wreck a jam. So, figure out how to balance it. Okay, now I have got to spend the next hour watching a pot. You know what they say, a a watched pot never boils? Well, i gotta, I got to bring this thing to a full boil and then boil it for one hour. After that, that's called the wort, by the way. Then I have to cool that boiling wort down to room temperature as rapidly as possible. So it's going to move over to the sink and there's going to be cold water running around it in the sink with the lid on. To bring this thing down to the temperature where I can add the yeast and while that is happening that'll take over an hour maybe two hours to get it down to about 85 degrees then I will pitch the yeast which is putting the yeast into the wort and then that will get poured into the sanitized fermenting vessel where it's going to live for the next 12 days or or so and that's where all the magic is going to happen. All those yeast are going to feast on that lovely malt. And eventually, which is true with uh, any form of alcohol, eventually they're creating CO2, which is escaping out of the fermenter, and they're also creating alcohol, ethanol, that good stuff that we all love. They're, they're producing that. The thing is, eventually... They, they produce a high enough amount of alcohol that they begin to kill themselves. Even they can't take alcohol. It's a waste product to them and a poison to them beyond a certain level. So when you can only get up to, I mean, I think the maximum is probably 12, 12%, percent uh, and the yeast are going to die. So this will turn out to be about 4% maybe a little little under that, maybe three eight, and that is governed by the strain of yeast and by the density of the um sugar solution, the malt solution. If I put in eight pounds of malt, I'm gonna get a higher alcoholic content than if I put in four pounds, so that's the deal here um It's about ten o'clock in the morning. Probably by noon, with any luck, the boil will be finished. The other thing that happens during the boil is, obviously, it's sterilizing itself by being boiled for an hour. Also, the hops will be added, and the hops is the third main ingredient. You got your water, you got your maltose, malt, and you got your hops. The hops is what adds the bittering, kind of counteracts the sweetness of the malt. It adds aroma, and there are a bunch of varieties of hops. And that will go in as soon as I see boil. And boil boil right along with it. So extracting all the good stuff out of the hops leaves. And then you know, we cool it down, put it in the fermenter, and sit there staring at it for the next 12 days i i will perhaps in the next episode to give you a little little update we'll be at the seven day point then give you a little update on how think how the ferment is going and then maybe in the following episode uh, i will talk about the ending process the, the the actual bottling and carbonation but we'll talk about that another time anyway just back to the jam i encourage you if you're not getting the kind of jams you want Maybe take it upon yourself and try to start up a little jam. Just start you up a little monthly jam. See how it goes. You will definitely learn something in the process. Hey, and one other thing I want to do real quick, and then we'll be done. I got an email from a lady. And look, if I had a million dollars that I could put on an ad, advertising, send to an ad agency on Madison Avenue and say, write me some good ad copy, a million dollars would not buy the contents of this wonderful email that I got from a lady named Ann. Ann witty. Ann wrote me an email, and I'm just going to read it to you. This Just check this out. Hello, I am a beginning intermediate mandolin player, and this is my first acoustic stringed instrument. I've been working my way through your lessons and can't say enough about how great they are. See, I couldn't pay a Madison Avenue ad copywriter to come up with stuff that good. And by the way, you can get that kind of stuff at bradleylaird.com. Okay, she continues I thought you might find this beginner story amusing. While I am changing strings, I always play your video, How to Change a Mandolin String. That's one of my free videos, which is also available there on bradleylaird.com. Okay, I was going to change the strings recently and realized that I had enough time to also. Add that little piece of leather in the tailpiece that you show in the video. So I proceeded to take off all the strings so I could do this. And much to my surprise, the bridge fell off. After my initial shock and horror, I thought, Aha! So that is what a floating bridge is. Before I completely freaked out about how I was going to put it back on, I remembered that I had purchased the Mandolin Handbook. That's an ebook that I sell on my site a couple of months ago, and had not gotten around to reading it yet. The chapter, locating the bridge correctly, saved the day for me. In raking light, I could see slight dents where the bridge had been, so I started there, reinstalled it, followed your instruction, instructions, tinkered with the position and tuning, and got it back in place just fine. In fact, the intonation at the 12th fret is a little better than it was before. Wow! Thank you for all your great teaching tools and for Grass Talk Radio. I learn something new every time I listen. Sincerely, Ann Witty. Thank you, Ann. I sent her a little email saying, wow, this is really cool. Do you mind if I read that on the podcast? She was like, "Oh, go right ahead. Uh, be sure to give me a heads up as to which episode it's going to come out. Anyway, thanks, Anne, and that's a wonderful plug for the podcast, the mandolin handbook, and my mandolin video lessons, which you can find on bradleylaird.com. Y'all take care. I got brewing to do, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast.